Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is uh, the Old Testament Hour with Dr. Peter Kapsner. And after several focus groups and beta studies, we're still allowed to do this hour together, Peter. <laughs> it was a little surprising. <laughs> it, it was, I yes. mean, it was nip and tuck. It was, it was quite it was close, close there. It close really call. was. Yeah. But here we are, and Indeed. we've got an exceptional hour planned today with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and he's going to talk about Young David. Yeah, we're back to a prominent character today. We've been able to do some obscure characters and learn a lot there, but it's interesting to me when we do some of the more prominent characters that I, they're prominent because of maybe one or two stories that I would have heard of, but mm-hmm. there, I mean, there is so much that happens in their lives, and we're going to get into quite a bit of that today. Yeah, Michael is a professor of Jewish studies and Bible at, Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He also has a show on Moody called Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and he's the son of Holocaust survivors, an author of several books, lives in Chicago. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Peter <laughs> and I are very excited to talk to you about young David today. Indeed. <laughs> well, you know, I think that, that people often think of David and his exploits. I was trying to, I was thinking about obscure characters that I could pick, but uh, I think this part of David's life kind of becomes obscure, except for the story of David and Goliath. That's the one that's not. So, yeah. And and he's really, as I, I was thinking, oh, favorite Old Testament character, favorite Old Testament character. I think really, I really do think it's David. So uh, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, studying his life. Yeah, we would love for you to begin teaching, and then Peter and I will definitely ask good follow-up questions. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you want me to just start, or do, do you have any questions that you want to need to Well, no, I, I, I would love for you to begin by giving us a, a an understanding of young David. Okay. Well, first of all, I think that, that one of the more, uh, uh, let's start with David and Goliath. That's, he's, he's present. You know, of course, we know that Samuel went and anointed him. He looked at all the brothers, thought that one of them would be the king, uh, but uh, then chose David. And then the next thing we, in chapter 17, that was First Samuel 16, chapter 17, David fights Goliath. We know that story. I have heard that taught countless times it's always about overcoming the giants in your life mm-hmm. and that always frustrates me because i don't think that's what the author intended us to get from it uh when i look at chapter 15 you see saul losing the throne chapter 16 david's the chosen one and, and they say well you know why him you know uh but it's because the lord looks at the heart uh that's what it says actually in chapter 16 verse 10 for man sees what is visible but the Lord sees the heart. And so we're saying, well, okay, what about David's heart that God sees? And then you come to chapter 17, uh, where David fights Goliath. And he comes to the battle. He, he hears what Goliath has been doing for 40 days about uh, mocking the armies of Israel. And David comes up there, and he is like, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then he, he says again later on when he talks to Saul of, of Goliath, he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And then when he talks to Goliath, he makes it clear what is so upsetting about Goliath defying the armies of the living God was that he actually was defying the God of Israel. Here's what he says in verse 45. You come against me with a dagger, spear, sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. And so what makes David's heart so different from the others? David cares more about honoring God's name than he cares about his own safety or security. Wow. David, that's what's the concern. And so when we look at this, this is the answer to the question we have in chapter 16. What's different about David's heart? And there you get it. Uh, he doesn't want anyone daring to defy the name of God. And that leads him to act with courage and with faith uh, and trust in God. And so uh, it's really a remarkable story. Uh, I mean, he doesn't ask for the king's armor. It doesn't fit him. He wants a sling and a stone, and, and there he goes. Uh, people ask, well, what, what are we looking for when we're looking for a leader? I think we ought to be looking for someone who cares more about honoring God in his or her life than caring about safety or security or ease of life. Yeah. Fearing God, not fearing man. Exactly. Yeah. And, and wanting to stand up for God, uh, to, 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 uh, honor his name. Yeah. Michael, before he gets to the story with Goliath, I, I think in my background, I would have thought that he was almost sort of banished as the shepherd to live sort of anonymously out in the pastures. And maybe he learned a little bit of fighting when it came to the bears and the lions and, and that sure. prepared him for the Goliath story. But right, you referenced uh, chapter 16, and when he has to be a, a servant in Saul's house to play the, the music for him, one of the servants says that I've heard of this person, the son of Jesse, who is a brave man and a warrior, and he, he, uh, he is a fine-looking man. Do we have any insight into what happened after the anointing of David and why he would even have been considered a warrior at that time before facing Goliath? Well, it, it, a lot of people wonder about this part in chapter 16. It, it may very well be uh, that it's out of sequence, uh, and it's not chronologically. Or it may be that he was just someone there, and he was mentioned, and it, it didn't even uh, he didn't even recall David. So it's not real clear. But maybe one of the things that he's learned is that uh, – but I don't think it's really uh, chronological, because it says that David came to Saul and entered his service – uh, and uh, he became his armor bearer. And so I, I don't think uh, he would have not known who his armor bearer was in chapter 17. Uh, so I think this is somewhat out of chronological order. Hmm. Is this evidence, too, of David's courage on some level to go and serve in Saul's court on this way? You talk about yeah, his courage yeah, and, and setting the Lord above <laughs> himself. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, I think also he he came not to have a prominent place. He came to play the harp. So, you know, he was he was a, he had a servant's attitude. Really, an interesting description of David when you think of him playing the harp and yet having this incredible skill to take down vicious animals outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, that yep. that is not something that you you learn over a weekend. <laughs> you're you're practicing all the time with this this yeah. device, yeah. this sling that is able to hurl rocks at animals and they're they could be menacing they could be coming at you i mean i'd be <laughs> i'd be running for the hills uh, but yeah you know I, I i always wondered about david how could he be this you know this artsy guy yeah that, no kidding uh, who can write songs sing songs play instruments and at the same time be a warrior and then uh when my son 
I have a, a couple sons, but my second son uh, is an actor, a writer. Uh, he's uh, plays piano, plays guitar. I mean, he's he's just this kind of artsy guy. Uh, and then he moved to Israel and was drafted and volunteered to be in an anti-terrorist commando unit. Wow! Wow! Yeah. That's double and, well from uh, this end. <laughs> and so, and so, so when I think about him, I think, well, he's a, a little bit like David. He's got that artsy side. But the, I, I would, I used to wrestle with him before he was in the IDF. But <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> no, no, he knows too much Krav Maga. So yeah, so Israeli martial arts. Yeah, so. interesting. So David is just an absolutely fascinating young man because when I mm-hmm. think of his skill level, I sometimes think of some super accomplished athlete types. I mean, a Boris Becker who wins Wimbledon at 17 and you go, all right, this kid is, this kid is, he's good at what he's doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he's taking on Goliath and, and just doesn't have what seems to be any fear whatsoever. You know, when you look at that passage, who's the one that should have been going to fight Goliath? It should have been Saul. Right. Because he was the one that, that was chosen so that he would go fight the battles for Israel, but he wouldn't do it. And he was the one closest to Goliath in size. Uh, if we go with the variant reading in the passage, Goliath was about as big as LeBron. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and Saul was a head taller than everyone. David probably was only about five feet tall. That's the average height of a person uh, in that time, uh, of a man at that time. Saul was probably about six feet tall. He should have been the one going out to, to fight this giant of a man. And no, uh, he, when David wants to put on the armor of Saul, it's way too big for him. So he, I don't think he looked like a strapping athlete. Uh, he huh. was, I'm he was, you. he became a mighty warrior. Right. So. No, I'm with you on that. I mean, he, yeah, he obviously um, knew his size and his limitations, and knew that he was going in with God's strength, not his own. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he had an incredibly it's, it's, cool it's head. A remarkable story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and it's not about how to overcome the giants in our life. It's it's about What's, what quality am I looking for in my life if I ever want to lead God's people? I want, I want to uh, put God first. That's what I want to do. Honor his name above all. Yeah, and that's really part of the, the contrast of the story, right, is that Saul ascends to the, to the throne, but he really has been judged on all of these external characteristics that maybe people would appreciate, but they're missing the point altogether, and, and God has seen exactly. something different in David, right? Exactly. That's the very thing that the, the, the author wants to get across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking yeah. about young David with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and we're going to uh, step away. But when we come back, we're going to continue learning more about the life of David as a young man. Be right back. little back talk prior to that. We are back. Yes, yeah, that's, indeed. that's good. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is our guest. We're talking about young David, and we've been, if you just joined us, just got in your car, we've been talking about the battle in, uh, between him and Goliath, and now I think we're going to ask him about 
uh, Michael about when David went on the run? Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, the the chapters after Saul goes after David's life, and uh, David has to live life on the run. Uh, first of all, I, I would think that if I were renaming Bible books, I would rename First and Second Samuel to First and Second David, hmm. because you see, Samuel didn't write these books; he was dead just about halfway through First Samuel, and uh, he didn't write these books. And they're really all about David, not about Samuel. Uh, Samuel is the one that will anoint David, and then Saul is the foil for David. The, the, this is the king we don't want. Here's the king that we do. And uh, and and then you've got that whole story leading up to the promise of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7 about an heir to the throne of David who will have an eternal house, kingdom, and throne, ultimately the son of David, the Messianic king. So the books are about David. And so we ask, what what in the world are these chapters when he's living life on the run? And I like to think of that as God's king school for David. Uh, he, he's being trained to sit on the throne. David has to live life on the throne so he can know how to sit on the throne. And uh, that's so important so often uh, in all our lives that we have to go through lessons where we are sort of stressing out and, and struggling along and not in a position of any kind of uh, impact in order to learn what God wants to teach us so that we can, in a sense, uh, lead God's people. I, I really see young David, the story of young David is the making of a leader. And this is king school for him to know how to lead. And then uh, two, there's this section, always context in these stories. In chapter 24, David spares Saul because he won't put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. And in chapter 26, once again, when he has the opportunity to kill Saul, he doesn't. Uh, because he doesn't want to put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. But right in the middle, you got chapter 25 tucked in there. And you have this interesting story of David, Nabal, and Abigail. Uh, Nabal means fool. Uh, I, I doubt that his mom named him that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a celebrated nickname, I would say. Uh, he earned it. And uh, so David is... Uh, caring and his men that he has gathered to him. He's caring for the sheep and the goats that Nabal had. And uh, he was a harsh and, and evil in all his dealings, it says. Now, what he's done is he's accepted the protection of David's men. This doesn't, David expects when when it's time uh, to celebrate the and, and to actually have the party in terms of uh, shearing sheep and, and caring for uh, for the animals, and now there's the great celebration that David will get sort of payment. And it, I don't think David was running a protection racket. It wasn't like, hey, it'd be something really <laughs> bad have happened to your ranch here. Uh, this was sort of cultural that if, if he accepted David's protection of his flocks, uh, that he would then at least share some of the profit with David and his men. And, uh, of course, Nabal doesn't want to do it. He mocks David about this whole thing. And David gets really hacked off, and he wants to now go and, you know, put on your belts, put on your swords. Come on, guys. We're going to go kill Nabal. There's going to be a slaughter. And when word gets to Abigail, who's a wise woman, she's just the opposite of Nabal. Uh, She comes to David and says, don't do this. Now, a lot of times in the stories of the Bible, we think the narrator, you know, like in Winnie the Pooh is going to tell us what the meaning of the story is. But so often the meaning of the story comes 
from the lips of the characters. Uh, it's the dialogue that does it. And she says to him, uh, when she sees David, my Lord, who has kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. And then she says to him, please forgive your servants, mess, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because he fights the Lord's battles. And then he, she tells him, I love with this irony or this allusion to David and Goliath, he will fling away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. And David acknowledges this. He says, today you have kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself. Basically, David has to learn not to avenge himself, not to get payback, not to uh, get revenge against people who are idiots, basically, Mm. uh, people who are foolish. And so in chapters 24 and 26, he knows you don't get vengeance against the Lord's anointed. But what about this this low-life Nabal? No, Uh, David has to learn that he has to fight the Lord's battles and let the Lord fight his battles. And this is one of the great things, and that's why he says, uh, when Nabal, the Lord does strike Nabal dead with maybe a seizure or a stroke of some sort, David heard that Nabal was dead, and he said, praise the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults. The Lord fought his battles, but restrained his servant from doing evil. Uh, the Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. David doesn't have to uh, fight his own battles. Let the Lord fight those battles, and David just has to fight the battles for the Lord. It's one of the great lessons. We should never, ever pursue vengeance. Instead, let God be our deliverer. Now, there are times when we have rights, and I'm not saying that we should never uh, speak up or address things, but this is one of those circumstances where what is David going to do? Go to the law to protect himself? You can't go to Saul very well and say, hey, this guy ripped me off. So at this point, the thing that we don't do is we don't take violence into our own hands, but we let the Lord be the one to defend ourselves. Michael, this is coming on the heels of him just having the crowds chant that he, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. So his star is really on the rise. You would think that this is not the usual pathway towards leadership, that once your star starts rising, you keep fanning that flame and, and move forward. But, he, but he's moving sort of into this exiled run. Yeah. I guess I'd love for you to talk to us a bit about how we value certain forms of preparing leaders today and what we're looking for versus what we learn in this story. Yeah, we, we prepare leaders by putting them on the fast track. We put them, uh, we, you know, the 30 under 30 who are going to be the next leaders, and we, we, put, we put them on, up in prominence. And God says, you know, true leaders need to learn humility and to, to take the back seat for a while. Uh, and that's, that's how they learn greatness, uh, learning to trust God in really difficult circumstances. And David was in really difficult circumstances, not just being pursued by Saul, but the enemies of Saul didn't have any love for David either. And uh, so he was constantly in trouble. Uh, and and this is a way that God, I think, builds people up. He doesn't put us on the fast track. What he does is, uh, I think the, the path to leadership is usually through humility and servanthood. That's, that's the key. And uh, that's so that when we do, if any of us do become leaders, uh, it, it won't go to our heads. And uh, it, it won't be we won't turn out like Saul, you know, who, who feels threatened by everyone. So that that to me, I think, is the a different way. The life on the run approach is what God gives us for training leaders. <laughs> Boy, no kidding. The life on the run. I think that applies to how a lot of people feel 
in yeah. life. They're yeah. always uh, yeah. on the run. And yet David <clears throat> had a, learned a lot from what God taught him on the run. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a transforming experience for him. That's why I call it King School. Uh, he really knew. And I, I do think it's interesting that you don't see him acting in vengeance later on when he has to flee from his son, Absalom, uh, you know, throwing rocks at him. No, yeah. doesn't doesn't pursue the death of that man immediately, which he could have. I like the idea of letting God take care of all the vengeance. And I don't know if that resonates in the minds of a lot of people today. But they, I know it's important to defend yourself and stand up for yourself. But the whole idea when you've been wrong to let God sort that out is something I think a lot of people struggle with, mm-hmm. Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying that someone that behaves criminally towards you or, no, or something like not. that, that you just, uh, but, but th- there are some circumstances where there's, there's just no defending yourself. There's no, there's no way to, and, and at that point uh, we have to, you know, when reviled, we follow the example of the Lord Jesus. We don't revile in return. Uh, that's what First Peter three says, and he cites Isaiah fifty three. Who didn't when Jesus didn't open his mouth and his in defense because there was just no benefit to that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, I think that's what every person who's going to have an impact ultimately has to learn. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Michael Radelnik, and we're talking about young David. And was he around twelve to sixteen when he was anointed king of Israel? Was it right around there? I, I you know, no one knows. I would say probably. I, I always guess around fifteen, so okay. somewhere in there. Yeah, it's about 15. Yeah, Yeah. and I I love the passage about do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Such a a powerful verse in 1 Samuel 16. And and you see David's heart, how he was responding. You know, imagine this. Think about this. A Jewish, now he's a a living in the wilderness, but he's gathered this group of uh, outcasts who are following him. So he's sort of uh, got this, this, you kind of think of him as he's got a gang here, you know, and a woman comes in that culture to plead with him and to correct him, <laughs> to teach him. Mm-hmm. And you would think that David would just say, what? But he hears God's voice through her and he responds and he takes it as from the Lord. That is terrific sensitivity to God that you see in David. All right, we're going to take uh, a little break as we talk to Dr. Michael Rydelnik. We're chatting about young David uh, today, and when we come back, we're going to continue learning about that. Michael's written a new book that he was nice enough uh, to let us be made aware of the 50 most important Bible questions, and he said that you can give away five copies of the book, if you like, on the show, and I think that's just a wonderful gesture, so thank you very much for that, Michael. And if you want to get in on the drawing to get one of Michael's five books called 50 Most Important Bible Questions, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion of Young David. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. 
We're back discussing Young David with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are always glad to be doing our Old Testament series, now probably in its sixth or seventh month with no signs of it slowing down. And it's a delight to hear from uh, Michael. He's the professor of Jewish studies and Bible at, Mo- at Moody Bible Institute. He also has a show called Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and he's the son of Holocaust survivors and author of many books. We're so glad to have him with us today. Um, he's also written a brand new book called 50 Most Important Bible Questions, and he was nice enough to say, hey, I'll give you five copies to give to your listeners. So if you want to be in on that drawing, you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. During the break, Michael, I did have a question come in. If Samuel didn't write them, who did? I always understood Samuel wrote them. Yeah, but he couldn't have written them because he was dead. You remember? (laughs) (laughs) So who do we think wrote them? Uh, I don't have any idea. Okay. I really don't. Uh, I don't know who wrote First and Second Kings either. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that a biblical writer wrote it, uh, that, that obviously is, is true, but uh, he didn't leave his name card, his card or his name or anything. So. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, but I will need some kind of gift card of some kind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were chatting about um, Abigail during the break. Yeah, it was. It, mm-hmm. I just she must have known at least who he was when he when she approached him. So you're talking about the courage that she showed at this point. But I I would imagine his reputation hadn't diminished that much, even though he was on the run. So there there was some really significant courage that this took for her to approach him. Oh sure, and think about how the rumors had gone out about David being, uh, you know, a, a troublemaker and someone that wasn't uh, trustworthy, and that's why Saul was pursuing him. Uh, I mean, it's this is what Nabal asked uh, when he when they came to Nabal on David's behalf. He said, "Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters." And so he he has a very negative view of David, and and I'm sure that there's been a lot of rumors going around. Why is David out of the court? Why is he not around anymore? He was such a good warrior boy. Uh, I think the Jerusalem Gazette was saying all these, you know, rumors <laughs> about David being a troublemaker and uh, not someone trustworthy. And of course she just comes right up to him, but she has a different idea. Uh, I want to talk about David at the end of his training period, but you can't help but see that she says that the Lord will establish a lasting dynasty for my Lord. She says, you're going to be king. And this is before, uh, Nathan, in Second Samuel 7, tells David that the Lord will make a, a dynasty for you, a house. But she says, the Lord will make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. And so she knows this is going to be the king, and he's going to be the one. So she's really a remarkable, very insightful woman. Michael, I'm getting anxious to get uh, to the end of the king training. Yeah. I'm, this this yeah. is a cliffhanger. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's—I uh, love First Samuel 30. Maybe it's because uh, I spent a lot of years as a pastor, and uh, I led congregations, and most of my congregations were predominantly Jewish, and so it really fit. I had mostly Messianic Jewish people in the congregations I led, uh, and uh, I like to call chapter 30, leading when no one's following, and uh, that's the, uh, the the joke that I always felt, you know, uh, Golda Meir once uh, was comparing, allegedly, anecdotally, with, we don't know if this is really true, she was the Prime Minister of Israel, she was comparing leadership of Israel compared to 
uh, leadership of the United States with President Nixon. President Nixon said, I don't understand why it's so hard. You only have two and a half million people there. She says, yes, but you are the president of 200 million people at the time, but I am the prime minister of two and a half million prime ministers. So uh, meaning that no one's listening to everyone that has a better idea. Everyone knows better. <laughs> what they do. And, and, uh, and David was in a situation here where he had to lead and no one wanted to follow. He gets back uh, and he finds that the Amalekites had come and raided their town where they were staying, Ziklag. They burned it to the ground and they hadn't killed anyone, but they took all their wives, sons and daughters and kidnapped them. And David was in a terrible position because the men who had been following him now are angry at him. And uh, they talked about stoning him, verse 6 says, and this is in First Samuel 30, verse 6, and they were bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. Uh, and then I love this verse. In verse 6 at the end it says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. The key relationship of a leader isn't the people of whom he is leading. The key relationship of David as he has come to the end of King's School, as he learns his most essential relationship is in his walk with God. And that's where he found strength, not in the encouragement of people, not in the, uh, the, the acclamation that people, oh, you're just the man, David. It was in his walk with God, and he, I, I'm sure he turned to God in prayer, and God is the one that strengthened his heart. And he talks about being God being the one who is the strength of his heart uh, in the Psalms. And so certainly he found his strength in the Lord his God. And uh, so I think that's the first step of uh, of being a leader when no one's following is find out who you're following. You know, that's, that's the key, following the Lord. And then secondly, uh, he goes and seeks God's word. Uh, he asks, should I overtake them? He, uh, and he asks Abiathar, I think he checks the uh, Urim and the Thummim, which is kind of mysterious, uh, but uh, uh, it is what they check, and he seeks God's word, and he says, go get him. And then uh, 400 men continue with him, but 200 are too tired, and so they stay back, and they watch the, the luggage and the stuff that they were carrying. David has this great victory. He recovers everything the Amalekites had taken, and now everyone's happy with him. And they have the, the plunder that they took from the Amalekites. Uh, and David uh, sees this. And all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued, because these 200 didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them, except for each man's wife and children. Uh, they may take them and go. And David says, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us. And handed over us to the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. David not only has this desire to go save the those kidnapped, but he also wants to protect and and be gracious to those who have just been too fatigued to go on. He's 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 genuinely fair to everyone and even more than fair he's gracious and uh it, that gets resistance but nevertheless uh it's successful and this shows david is is the kind of king that doesn't need everyone to give him accolades or to follow him he will follow god and that the results will be for the best so that's 
I think this is the the best lesson for how to lead when no one's following. And David David needed that because he was about to become king. And as he's in that lonely place of leadership and, and finding strength in, in the Lord, this is maybe different than some leaders that sometimes we observe that are uh, not having people following them too, but then they use kind of their position or their office of authority to to make those decisions anyway. David's not necessarily lording it over people, but he does know no. that he has to make some decisions independent of the people from time to time. But that that is different than just saying, hey, I'm the dude here or whatever it is, and, yeah, and, and, and then having you your do own way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he he had to seek God, seek God's word, and then they were willing to go with him. And even those who couldn't continue, he was gracious to them. Uh, it it is a great story, and David is the kind of leader uh, that we we certainly would want to emulate. And I really do believe that uh, every pastor I, I I have had a number of times where here at Moody we we have pastors from the area in, and I've had a couple of times where I've had a chance to talk with them. And this is one of the passages. Uh, that I've I've had the privilege of sharing because every pastor knows this, uh, every leader knows that there's going to be time that they get resistance. People are going to be pushing back and saying, "No, uh, that's that's not what we want to do." And uh, I, again, not lording it over them, but following God and saying, "Okay, this is what we must do." And uh, in following God, they were willing to go ahead instead of stoning him and go with him, and uh, it turned out better for them. And when he ultimately does fall, I know it's later in his life, it's not part of the young life we're talking about today, but when, when he, with the Bathsheba story, um, he finds himself up on this rooftop. And, and I've wondered, Michael, if there's in a parallel with Nebuchadnezzar, who is also on a rooftop at one point, surveying his, his empire, right? And, and so David seems to also be full of himself a little bit in these moments, potentially, in, in that it's the exact opposite of what he's learning in this king time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, a, you know, a lot. Uh, listen, think of Solomon. He, he was a very wise man who wasn't paying attention to what he knew. And David, uh, he had learned a lot and had done some great things as king. But nevertheless, you know, when, when he finally got middle-aged and should have been going out to battle, but he was saying, you know what? I got a little midlife crisis going here. I'm staying <laughs> home. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if, I, I know, Peter, you, you must have been to Israel. Yes? Yes. Yeah, so when, when you go... To where uh, Elat Mazar, who was the archaeologist for the city of David, which is the original Jerusalem, uh, she feels she has found David's palace. It's from 1000 BC. Right. It's right at the top of a hill looking down. And so David could go out and look at the rooftops beneath him. And, uh, of course, people store water. Uh, and... Uh, they they have they would take a bath up on their rooftop and I have a feeling that uh, Bathsheba did not know she was being watched and David should not have been doing that uh, he should have said oh no I better not look over there but instead he he went out probably got his binoculars you know and and said now that's the girl for me that's the one I want and uh, he he one sin leads to another after he sins with Bathsheba then to cover up that sin he behaves abominably. Uh, to Uriah and and sets Uriah up to be killed. It is, it's it's David's the depth of David, uh, and I, I have to say that for anyone that's in any position, uh, midlife is where the real challenges come. David's having a midlife crisis, mm. and and I have to say, you know, I'm thank God I'm past midlife. But that every person I know at midlife, there's decisions that are made whether I'm going to continue on this path. Or am I going to to make bad, stupid 
decisions. I think we have the opportunity to make stupid decisions every day, even when we get to be uh, my age. But nevertheless, I think it's heightened uh, at midlife, and mm. I think uh, people ought to be really prepared and and uh, make conscious choices to pre-decide what to do when the, those temptations arise. Dr. Michael Rydelnik is our guest, and we're talking about young David. And Michael, when I think of David, I, I assume he did not take rejection very well. And what what what, <laughs> what what can we learn from that? Uh, when he, you mean by when he was rejected by Nabal or yeah or, yeah yeah yeah. Well, I think that we ought not to be a little too, uh, too fast to to get angry. You mean uh, like want to go kill everybody? <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I've learned uh, hosting a radio program. Uh, mostly people are very, very gracious and kind to me, but every now and then I get those notes that where people will write things and say, I am so uh, ashamed of what you said or so disappointed in what you said. They will say things. I'm just upset with you. And uh, the thing that I, I, I have, I always want to get my back stiff and write a really sharp note back. And uh, all I can ever think of is, yeah, I'm more disappointed in me than I am than you are in me. So that's what I always say to them. Uh, you know, if I didn't handle this as perfectly as as you think I should, I'm more disappointed in me than you are. And so, uh, and you know, it's amazing. Uh, just acknowledging that it's really true that I am more disappointed in me than anybody else could be. Uh, it gets people to stop being so angry. It's just amazing. So. <laughs> I think David would have would have been better off not to strap on his swords and go after Nabal. He said, well, you know what? There are people like Nabal. What are you going to do? Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. and and that's uh, that's the you, we don't deserve anything. So so David was ang- angry because he he was deserving of something, and ultimately we have to recognize that we don't deserve anything. You know. Mm-hmm. We're going to have some concluding thoughts about uh, young David with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and he's also made his book available for five uh, people, they have five copies. So if you want to get in on the drawing, text the word book uh, to 877-933-2484. The book is called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. You're going to definitely want to be in the drawing for this. So coming up next, uh, more with young David, and then I think I'm going to open his book and give you a sample of what's inside. Be right back. Delnick, we're talking about young David. Um, Peter, this has been fascinating. I didn't know much of what I've learned today. Yeah, no, exactly. We talked about that. I mean, another prominent character, another but prominent so character. many parts of the story that I'm just really never considered before. Yeah. And Michael, a lot of people want a copy of your book. So this is exciting. I want to uh, give people a sample from your book. But uh, before we get to that, do we have any concluding thoughts on young David? Yeah, I, I, I just feel like uh, David is a great role model and we ought not to focus only on his failure, uh, which I think uh, I'm not even sure. I, I believe that when you've had David on as a topic 
before it was about David and Bathsheba. But uh, I, I like to see David more holistically and uh, see him from the perspective of his growth and uh, even this this difficulty. But then how responsive he was when when finally uh, Nathan came to him in that that famous scene where he says, "You're the man, mm-hmm. you're the man," mm-hmm. and David doesn't. I mean, think about what he could have done to Nathan. There's brave prophet going and talking to the king. Uh, instead, instead of killing Nathan, he just weeps mm. and repents. And we can read Psalm 51 with his words of repentance. And we can even read Psalm 32, where he's trying to teach others to repent uh, the way he learned to. It, it, it is a lot to see in David. And uh, he's, he's certainly not perfect, but he, he has a, so many commendable attributes Mm-hmm. And I just think he's a he's a great uh, great example. And now I understand I do understand uh, why the, the Bible uh, talks about that, that David was a man after God's own heart. I think that's a deliberate double meaning. Uh, in the one sense, he's a man after God's heart because he chooses to pursue God. He's he has God's heart as his desire. He's also a man after God's own heart. He's a man that God chose. Uh, and so even with all his difficulty, he's got this great promise that one day God said, I've made an unbreakable promise to you. You will have a descendant who will have an eternal house, kingdom, and throne. And that's the Messianic King, the son of David, Jesus. And uh, I, I think that uh, that's that's what we're supposed to be looking forward to and seeing this example of David and the promise that God made to him. I think it's it's really so cool. That's, that's great. And then your book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions, I know with a lot of interest right now, a lot of people are wanting in on this, and I opened it and looked through it, and it's got some very great uh, questions. And let me just jump to one, and I'll, I'll raise the question, and Michael, you can respond. Uh, okay. Number 22, I struggle so much with persistent sin and continue to face spiritual and physical problems. Is it possible that I'm under a generational curse? That's a good question. Yeah, people talk about generational curses. Uh, I had someone once come to me and say that their daughter was having all sorts of problems, gallbladder problems. She was a young woman in her 20s and all sorts of medical problems that they thought maybe she might be on, under a generational curse. It was before they knew it was a gallbladder. Well, she wasn't on a generational curse. She had a gallbladder problem. Took her gallbladder out. She was fine. <laughs> so uh, I think that too often we want to see that children suffer because of what parents did, I, th- I think that there's a better explanation rather than a spiritual uh, cause like that. Uh, here's what we know. In Exodus uh, 34, where it talks about the Lord is compassionate, verse, verse 5, uh, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. Then it says, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And here's the key. I love how the HCSB translates it, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Well, what that is saying is that when parents have uh, wrongdoing, whether it's uh, alcoholism or various kinds of drug addictions or you name it, and people rebel against God in this way, and they think it won't affect their family. No, 
it, the consequences, the poverty that it leads to will affect their children. Uh, the behavior that they model will affect their children. Uh, too often, uh, if they have rage issues, that will affect their children. And as a result, the consequences come on their children, not a generational curse. They're not cursed. Uh, you know, my dad struggled all mightily after the he had his wife five children murdered at Auschwitz, his parents, his grandparents. And, uh, you know, I was, he had anger issues uh, as I grew up with. And I used to think when I grow up, I am going to be a dad and I won't have anger issues like that. But the truth of it is I would probably would have uh, because what the father does, the child does. Mm. And someone once asked me, how come I don't? Uh, <laughs> I thought, well, I used to grow up and think I want to be the opposite of him. That's it. Whatever my dad does, I'm going to do the opposite. But the real reason is when I was a, a high school student, I came to faith in Jesus. Hmm. and He transformed my life, and he even transformed the consequences. And that's the great message of this passage, that God doesn't—we're not forced to bear up under those consequences. The Lord Jesus can transform us, and he can make us the people whom he wants us to be. He can refather us, in a sense. And uh, that's that's the lesson that we need to learn here, that God is really more gracious than anything else. Mm-hmm. Wow. Michael, how about question 38? Do Jewish people and Christians worship the same God? Ah, well, uh, it seems to me that the, that Christians are indeed worshiping the God of Israel. Uh, clearly, Paul talks, uh, and Peter talks uh, in the book of Acts, uh, you know, men of Israel, I know uh, that you're devout and things like that. And it does appear that uh, the, in the book of Acts, they are stating over and over that they worship uh, the same God. I, I'm, I'm, this is, you have to read the answer more thoroughly. But I think the key is in Romans 10, uh, where it says they have a zeal for God, Jewish people, uh, without knowledge. And so, there's uh, a great knowledge the Jewish people worship the God of Israel or still believe in the God of Israel, but they have a lack of knowledge about who he really is. They don't fully understand. They don't understand the triunity of God, that God is three in one. Uh, they don't certainly don't believe in God, the son. And so it's the same God of Israel, the Old Testament God that, that we uh, also worship but they have limited knowledge of who he really is. And so the answer is yes, but uh, limited. Hmm. Michael, question 41 is, will we see God when we die and go to heaven? Will will we spend eternity? I mean, it's, you know, I sometimes have this picture that we go to heaven. It's an awfully big place. And every once in a while you get to go see where God is. But uh, do I have the wrong perception of this, Michael? Well, well, people are always thinking that they're going to see God, the father, you know, uh, and, uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus is very clear. No one has ever seen God. And uh, we said, well, what about the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7? That was a vision. What about Isaiah 6, where he sees the throne of God? A vision. No one has actually ever seen God. And, uh, but we will see God, because in Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the exact representation, the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you'll see the Father. And so the great promise we have is one day we will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus. And will we see God? Yes, we will see God the Son for all eternity. And, I, you know, some people are a little disappointed. What, you mean I'm not going to see the Father? Well, the Father's a spirit. 
He's the invisible God, but the one true God. And this is a mystery of the Trinity. I, I'm not going to even try to explain that. But <laughs> nevertheless, we will see the the Lord Jesus, the God, the Son, forever, and we'll have fellowship with Him, and His countenance will be upon us. How cool is that? I don't think mm-hmm. we'll ever be disappointed if we only get to see the Lord Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Michael, Messianic Jews are so fun to have on the show. Oh, for sure. <laughs> we we love you on the yes. show. You know, we have oh, uh, Mitch Glazer on, and we have oh, um, good. Uh, Randy Newman on a bunch. We love Randy. They're great. I, you know, uh, Randy Newman's parents went to my congregation in Long Island. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and uh, Mitch Glazer and I have been friends. I was just talking with him the other day. 48 years. Oh, wow. wow. 48 yeah, years wow. we've been friends. Yeah, and Michael Amazing. Brown and Tom Berkowitz, and the list goes yeah, on and Michael on. Michael Brown, yeah. a dear friend, yep. Yeah, yep. and Marty Getz, he's been on the show, too. <laughs> All my old friends. <laughs> yeah, I figured, I figured. <laughs> it's like you and David in Chapter 30 and First Samuel there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All yeah. the buddies are out, so yeah. I love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing the show. It's really been a delight having you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, thank you so much. Dr. Michael Rydalnik has been our guest, and that. Peter, that's all the show we have for Great today. Great show. Yeah, love it. Went fast, it. as it. usual. It always goes quickly. Indeed. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with me today. And if you uh, check out the podcast, you can hear the entire show. It's available, like, in 15 minutes. So if you missed any of it, check it out. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on that pillow tonight, know God's working out that great plan in your life, and he loves you. I do, too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.